play the music. It's fine. Hello, welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I, I just asked Yoram what introduction material he has, and he <laughs> typed into our shared Google documents, I got nothing, which is um, reassuring. It's been another week at home, I guess, and that's a little bit hard to um, yeah. report on amazing things that you've seen in the world, because yeah, your world has been a bit smaller this week nothing really that happened and okay that something big happened this week what happened this week like yesterday bernie dropped out of the race so, no a bit, little bit more local <laughs> smaller more local but also bigger probably uh, one of the significant events of your life ah uh, yeah yeah <laughs> ah. <laughs> it's my son's birthday yesterday your first born and only child <laughs> yeah had his first birthday yeah and also my other big uh, thing is that i have a balcony now Two things that are equally important to me. Oh my god! And also Bernie. What happened? Bernie dropped out of the race. Yeah, and that's literally all I know. This one sentence, like I read today. Did he just die? Because he's quite old. No, I hope not. Um, but yeah, I think he dropped out. Sorry, Bernie. And I know too little about politics in the US to really comment on it. I just feel like we have to prepare for another session of Trump, and it's terrifying. I think it's inevitable. Yeah. Um, oh, because he he lost to Joe Biden. So yeah. basically, he didn't really drop out. He failed. At least that's what the New York yeah. Times is telling me. <laughs> so he dropped out because of failure. I Yeah, already like a week or two of several ago, they said like from all the preliminary votes, he pretty much has now more chance, and but still kept trying. Um, mm. So not a big surprise. But yeah, I, I was rooting for him. But I, I know his politics are like best probably compared to what i believe in but he's just so old he's just such an old man like, um, yeah but and there is a like senile crazy old person in charge right now so i'd rather take a person that is just old so this is definitely an argument <laughs> i so, mean and it's not that joe is biden is like uh, young and fit and healthy and like he's 78 years old that's just so old like, yeah. I'm sorry to older people. I don't want to be ageist. But, like, why do we always have old white guys? Like, we could have somebody who's a young white guy. We could have somebody who's, like, an old non-white guy. We could have an old non-white non-guy. Like, any option that is just not, like, the combination of all three old and white and guy. Like, this is my... Yeah. It's really minimal. Yeah. But this is also the point where I'm losing more and more sympathy for, like, really messed up political systems because there are votes and elections and things like that. That can lead to change, but apparently the candidates with the best chances combine all of these three qualities. Um, and that's on all of us in, in our respective countries. Look at the people that we vote into power and think about, like, does it have to be? But anyway, I didn't want to get too political. It's just like <laughs> if one thing that stood out a from... A baby had a birthday and that was beautiful. That yeah. was a beautiful thing that happened. Yeah, yeah. I made like little French um, uh, tarte au framboise, uh, like, like raspberry, raspberry tarts. Raspberry tarts with it's like raspberry and a layer of custard, right? Yeah, like um, a, a tart shell, custard, raspberries, 
uh, below, uh, like raspberries on top of the custard. And the custard was delicious. I made it from um, a masterclass recipe from Dominique Ansel. And um, it was delicious because you make a custard with like for 250 mils of milk, which is not a lot, for like four egg yolks. And then you make like the whole custard. And then in the end, you put in like a generous chunk of butter into the warm <laughs> custard. And it makes it silky th smooth and delicious. But if you mm. think about what you're eating, it's pretty much sugar, butter and egg. <laughs> you put sugar in there as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's a sweet custard. Okay. That's, um, I actually have four egg yolks hanging around waiting for me at the moment because I made some macaroons because it was my housemate's birthday and we tried very hard to make <laughs> so a birthday indoors more exciting. <laughs> you are an egg yolk leftover person and I'm an egg white leftover person. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And it's actually, yeah, generally I am, that's true, because I would make more of like a, a pavlova or a, a meringue. Yeah. Yeah. But now I have a little German death machine I can very easily make um, custard. I think that's like one of the, the selling points. Uh, of the thermomix. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what little German death machine. Uh, how, is, is, how is my child coming to you? To you? <laughs> <laughs> There's this amazing comedy show, um, the the catering show, which has two Australian mm. comedians who do like bad cooking, and one of them is a feature on the thermomix. Which, if you don't know, guys, there's thermomixes which are like lab thermomixes. It's you put like Eppendorf tubes, like um, small sample tubes, and it shakes and heats them. This is like a big um, mixing bowl that also cuts things and um, warms them and stirs them and kneads them and does everything. But it's like ridiculously overpriced, and it's also it's not a pyramid scheme, but you can only buy it via a representative, which yeah. is a bit of a weird situation. Um, but like, it pretty much pays for itself when you can make the custard without stirring it. <laughs> is what I hear. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I didn't find it too hard with the with the custard and the stirring. Um, I hate stirring things like uh, milk rice and and stuff that needs like forty minutes on the hob. Um, but I have to keep stirring it. Yeah, otherwise uh, it will won't get like sticky and it might burn. I think with the thermomix you have a problem where like it sometimes stirs too much. So if you try to make a stew, you can't make that because it's constantly stirring and you then like end up breaking up things. So I wonder with the milk rice if it would actually break apart the grains and make just like mush instead of making. I mean, I think that's what like, you usually rice. go for with milk rice. Yeah, I think maybe German milk rice could be a little bit more mushy than like creamed yeah. milk or whatever we have. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's go to the paper of the week. <laughs> Again with the cooking. Guys, I hope you're all enjoying cooking in isolation. I mean, it's literally the only thing we can do it's right now. Um, work from home and cook things and at least eat nice because I think if I would also eat terribly, um, I would lose my mind very quickly. So I'm spending time in the kitchen, although actually with little boy, there's not that much time that I can actually spend in the kitchen, but... But still, you're in a pretty good situation. I mean, we both yeah. know we've got like kitchens and like not sharing with too many other people and yeah. having access to foods and ingredients and stuff. So yeah, but uh, and can work from home. All very good things. A couple of friends actually contacted me about like my like having tips and recipes, what they can make at home. Because I always share the stuff on Instagram, and then they, I had like. I think three different friends approached me and were like, hey, you're making bread, right? And I would like to make bread now as well. How do you do it? Um, and so uh, I th more and more people are getting into this, uh, to the, my lifestyle of getting fat at home by eating a lot of good things. I would just like to say that I was one of those friends and I asked Joram for a bread recipe and then I made bread and it wasn't very good. So like that may have been because I didn't follow his recipe and I used another recipe, which was much faster and easier because I'm a lazy <laughs> 
I mean, a lazy duck, we can beat that out. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, correlation. I asked Yoram, I got given a recipe, I made bread. The bread was not that exciting. It was kind of like hot flour. Um, anyway. Anyway, um, let's talk about the paper now. Uh, what is the paper of the week this week, Yoram? The paper of the week this week is Mass Spectrometry-Based Draft on the, the Arabidopsis Proteome, published in Nature... Uh, actually, I don't have the date noted down, but I think it's quite fresh um, from Julia Merkner and then a lot of people working together. Like it usually is the case when you have things that are called something like uh, proteome or genome or one of the other ohms. You usually have lots of people working together from the lab of Bernhard Kuster from Munich. They're from the uh-huh. Munich University. Yes. And you chose that paper, Tegan. Why? Why did you choose it? Um, it just seems like one of these like huge, um, I don't know if groundbreaking is the right word, but like this huge resource paper, which is kind of, um, going to be cited and it's going to be something like, it's, it's quite a big movement. I'm not sure that it's, yeah, groundbreaking to me is like a shift of ideas. And this is more just like, wow, now we have this availability. Um, it's a pretty big thing to me. I think, um, yeah. yeah. And we can discuss that, like why different things are important i guess um you wanted to discuss kind of omics in the background first yeah i mean it says proteome there and then we that's something maybe not everybody is familiar with but a word that most people know is genome right it's the idea of combining all of the genetic information into like one package that's a genome that's the entirety of the genetic information in an organism and we can have more than just the the genome we can also have the proteome which is what this paper is about Um, we can also have the transcriptome and something that's also coming up in this paper is the phosphoproteome Um, there's also like the metabolome and pretty much whenever you group all of the same things together you create an ohm and then you just have to like put the name of the things that you put together in front of ohm and that's what yeah. you get because there's sometimes I mean, some things that get a little bit ridiculous right yeah i guess the the, the ohm is like the entirety of the yeah of this field so like the genome is all of the genes so it's like yeah the entire genetic sequence the dna um of an organism and obviously with Arabidopsis the genome was defined what 20 years ago now and I think we've um, talked about this on the blog before now we have like hundreds of different Arabidopsis genomes so we have um, different accessions or cultivars are kind of different races of Arabidopsis and and many many genomes which we can compare and contrast Um, so that's kind of been done for a while Um, and I would say like transcriptomes have also been kind of around for a while. So now we're yeah. looking at the messenger RNA. So the genes get made into RNA, which then get made into proteins. And getting transcriptomes has been pretty big for 10 years, I would say. Like RNA sec has been around. Yeah. Maybe it's been affordable for about five years and kind of been a thing for 10 years. Yeah, before we had things like other methods where we couldn't read everything, but we could like detect some things that we know on chips, right? You had these hybrid, hybridization things where it was like a simpler approach, and so we could already read some of it. But for yeah, five years or something, we can look at the entire thing, and that like bloomed, and we had a ton of different papers coming up where then they could not only like count, uh, find all of the different mRNA transcripts, but also count them and uh, assign a 
value of the expression level, which means like how often do you find this mRNA molecule? And if you find it a lot, it's made more uh, more actively, and that probably is directly linked to more active uh, protein production and so on. So uh, we could w w with genomes we often just like list all of the letters in the DNA. With uh, transcriptomes, we actually also say how many of the different transcripts we find, and this is the key information in there. Yeah, so so genome is kind of s stays the same. Then transcript is like the active things that are being made at the RNA level in either a tissue type or in, in a, at a certain under certain conditions. But then those transcripts still need to be made into proteins. And we know that it's not always like a one-to-one -one ratio. So just if you have like 10 transcripts, it doesn't mean you're going to have 10 proteins. Um, the, the single transcripts can be translated, so made into proteins multiple times. So you can t make multiple proteins from one transcript. Um, and there can be variations. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But so knowing the amount of transcripts is useful. It, it does give us an idea about what genes are active, but it doesn't tell us everything, which is why we then want to go to the proteome. Yeah, and the proteome are then all of the proteins combined. And the proteins are usually the things that do the work. There's With always in biology, there are some exceptions, but overall the proteins are the machines that do the work. They run the metabolic processes, they are structural, um, they work like they, the DNA is bound around pr uh, proteins and so on. So proteins are really sort of the tools that are working there. And um, knowing which tools, which proteins are in the cell is very important to understand... Um, yeah, what's going on in the cell but the thing with proteins is compared to like the genome and the transcriptome is that it's even more complicated um, than just the, the dna and the rna to, to to measure those but also that for a while now we've been able to um, map out proteomes um, it's done with machines called mass specs or mass spectrometers uh, that can pretty much they're like very fine scales and you pretty much weigh the individual proteins and have databases to figure out like according to the weight which protein you have and these machines and the software behind it uh, became better and better in recent years and so before it was like a massive thing to get a proteome and actually during my phd time already uh, i could get already from some organelles the full proteome in the organelle mm -hmm. um, as a phd student pretty much without big issues i think the the difference is mainly um the um sensitivity of the different techniques so um the the thing about doing a transcriptome is that you can actually have an amplification step in there so you can use pcr to take one mrna molecule and make thousands of them which you can then um detect if they've been like copied in the right way but with the proteome we don't have that amplification stage so we need the machines to be a much more sensitive and that's kind of what has made proteomics harder because we can usually see a lot of proteins but what we we know that what we're seeing is only the more abundant proteins and that's yeah still actually a limit today that's kind of we're getting better and better each time but yeah. yeah and then on top of the proteome we have the phosphoproteome which is just that proteins themselves can be phosphorylated or dephosphorylated and this basically changes their structure and kind of activates them and inactivates them which is again really important for them actually being able to do what they need to do and also important if they want to meet up with other proteins and like like um communicate with those so this is another omics thing that we can have is the phosphoproteome yeah and there are also as as Yoram said like other things like an epigenome or you know translatome or and yeah there's there's many options here and the phosphoproteome is particularly exciting um because 
there's a number of modifications that can be done to a protein after it's made, but the phosphoproteome is one that uh, often regulates the activity as well. So you can have a pool of inactive protein that's either phosphorylated or dephosphorylated. It depends sort of on the protein. And then you can switch them on by changing the phosphorylation state. So if you just measure how many of protein X you have uh, and you don't know anything about the phosphorylation state, you have actually no idea how many of them are active and how many of them are inactive. And so by in integrating this level of data, um, you have a much better understanding of how big is the pool of things that can do work right now. Yeah, so I think um, the novelty of this paper, one of the, the things that's cool, is, is just, I mean, it's really the scale. So the authors say that they use, and I'm quoting here, state-of-the-art mass spectrometry and RNA sequencing, RNA-seq analysis to provide the first, to our knowledge, integrated proteomic, phosphoproteomic, and transcriptomic atlas of Arabidopsis. And I would argue that the the integration of the proteomic, phosphoproteomic, and transcriptomic data is cool and exciting, but I think that probably does exist before people have done proteomics, phosphoproteomics uh, definitely together and probably have also matched transcriptomics. The key word here is really atlas because they didn't just do proteomics, phosphoproteomics, and transcriptomics. They did it across a huge range of different cell types. Um, so all different parts of the plant you can imagine, but also under different conditions. So Arabidopsis cell culture, Arabidopsis as a callus, so growing, like um, regenerating in tissue culture, just all of this. So it's, it's just really a massive undertaking that's happened here. So yeah, just to mention a little bit the scale of things that they did is uh, when they looked at the things they, they or from the genome we know that we have about uh, 27,000 protein coding genes or potentially protein coding genes and now they could really map out all of the proteins that are there and they found 18,000 of these genes actually expressed in the cells under these different conditions when you say all of them, that's actually a comment in the paper. So they found way more than has ever been found before. So there's 27% increase on what we have in our protein database um, currently, more than double what has been found in a single proteomic study before. But the authors mentioned that they still don't think they have exhaustive, cover exhaustive coverage of the proteins. Um, and that's this problem I mentioned before with the sensitivity of the mass spec. Um, it's better at detecting things that are more abundant. So they said that in their study, there was still um, evidence that lowly abundant or lowly expressed um, proteins were not necessarily in their database so this can go even bigger and better but yeah although i was already very much impressed by the <laughs> sure, orders the, the dynamic range that they gave because they said and this is like one of these like short statements that says like the, the, the dynamic range was about six orders of magnitude in protein accumulation and you think of uh, six orders of, of magnitude what is that that means there's a difference between like the the, the um, smallest abundance to the largest abundance of a million um in difference mm. so if you imagine like a ball pit filled with like colored balls and you have like from the red balls you have a million balls in there and then you have one yellow ball in in the ball pit as well they were able to find a yellow ball between the millions of the others um mm. because they had such sensitive machines and are also sophisticated software because the machines they they the machines have to be sensitive but it's also the way you can analyze your data downstream that's really important there so incredible dynamic range um and yeah quite impressive to me 
And yeah, they found about um, 43,000 sites of phosphorylation. So that, as you see, like 18,000 protein types that they found, 43,000 sites of phosphorylation. So that gives you already an idea that uh, when phosphorylation happens, it can happen in multiple places within a single protein. Um, that's why it's a multiple of that. And um, around 50% of the proteome is uh, phosphorylated to some extent, um, which they also could find. And I think it's also a number that before wasn't as precise, uh, where they could find, like, uh, finally put a number to the extent of phosphorylation and the importance that it has uh, in the biological system. So, I mean, it's a big paper and it's also a nature paper, so it's quite short. So there's a lot of data, but it's kind of condensed in there. So we go and read the paper yourself and look at the data and definitely go and look at the databases, which I guess Yoram will talk about. Um, but for now, some, some fun facts. Yeah, go for it. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, so I think um, at the transcriptome level um, and I think also the proteome level, they found that there was not really, actually I think the transcriptome, there was not really any tissue-specific expression of a gene. So there was nothing that was like only expressed in leaves and another thing that's only expressed in flowers. That didn't really happen. The main difference was abundance. So nothing's really on or off. It's more just like order of magnitudes more on in flowers, for example, than it is on in um, leaves. And another thing is we mentioned already before the relationship between mRNA and proteins and that it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. And they could find now by looking at all of the data that in for many different for many proteins in, in uh, many tissues, we have a pretty di uh, direct correlation. So if we have a lot of transcript, we in general have a lot of uh, protein. But there are some exceptions and this is about 48% of the protein abundance that um, can't be explained in such a straightforward way. So that means that after the mRNA is made and translated into protein, there are, um, or be even before the translation, there is something that regulates it. So we can't just look at the mRNA data and say, if the mRNA goes up, we are certain that the protein um, abundance also goes up. Which is why we need another ohm. We need a translatome to look at how things are being translated as um, they go. So how the mRNA yeah. is being changed into proteins, which is another sort of omics we can do. Um, I think on that same topic, it was also quite cool that there was a difference between different tissues about how the transcripts related to the protein amounts. So this was especially true for seed and pollen, where the relationship between how much transcripts there were and how much proteins there were was basically... Um, uncoupled compared to um, in other tissues. And one thing that, that tickled my fancy that uh, was close to my heart was uh, the, uh, the when they were talking about complexes because in my PhD project I was studying uh, protein complexes and um, when you have all of the data of all of or almost all of the proteins you can now start to correlate when you find them together especially when you look in all of the different tissues in a, in a plant and with that they could sort of link things that were previously just hypothesized to be together or um, where we know from the data that together you could see them also in their data set to be there in stoichiometric amounts to each other so if you know you need two parts of protein a and three parts of protein b they could find them in the right relationship in their data set there and this is just another entryway to study some of these protein complexes that can sometimes be very very difficult to study with other conventional methods um, so 
that was really exciting for me because yeah i actually put in some of my uh, proteins that I, i was working on and looked where they were expressed and found it quite interesting like i have to see if i can work this still in uh, in my thesis because luckily i'm still writing it um <laughs> yeah um, um i think on a similar topic to that i really like this idea of guilt by association or um sort of correlation co-expression analysis and this is the idea that if two genes are always up in some tissue and always down in other tissues and always responding to heat in the same way there's an increased likelihood that they are involved in the same pathway or even in the same um, complex so the authors also suggested that their study would be really useful for doing these co correlation co uh, sorry co-expression co analyses and this is basically where you know certain members of a pathway or know certain things involved in like forming one complex and then you look for other stuff that changes in the same way across all these conditions and then you can say hey maybe that's also yeah part of part of that process or pathway and then you take it as a candidate and then you do further experiments um and maybe confirm it and that's also what i want to say about this paper that in amongst all of this huge data they also had some kind of classical like genetic molecular bio biochemistry approaches so they had like some gas staining they did phosphomimics so they did like um yeah just different kind of what well, not basic but um kind of single plants experiments as well which was really quite cool um there was a storage protein called cra1 maybe some of you are working with seeds and you already know about it but i think it was very cool that it was 10 of the total proteins um in seeds that's like a huge amount like just one protein is or you know 10 and the other thing is that they found that what really defined the differences between different um, tissues was whether that tissue was photosynthetic or not and that's basically because photosynthetic um, proteins are expressed to just huge levels so this was really um one of the things that defined mm -hmm. yeah and i you know that's kind of a win for chloroplast i love my chloroplast <laughs> yes same I, i was uh i when i was reading through this and i went through these 30 different tissues so from like different leaf ages and so on i was like but just look at the chloroplast that's what i want to know <laughs> like do all your like very very sensitive uh, sensitive things on the chloroplast but of, of course that was also integrated in the big data set um so yeah so the phosphoproteome um the idea of how many proteins are phosphorylated and by what and they detected um, kinases which are the proteins that facilitate the phosphorylation or dephosphorylation um, and yeah, phosphatases yeah and phosphatases yeah kinases put the phosphor phosphor groups on it the phosphate groups on it and the phosphatases they cleave them off again um, yes i have some basic biology is still in me um <laughs> That's back to the textbook. <laughs> uh, so the number of, of these different of these types of enzymes that they could found, find, they were very comparable across most of the tissue. But there was some ex uh, exception there in the pollen and in the egg cell. So in the reproductive cell types, um, uh, they found uh, much more um, much more of these protein types, which is indicative of the increase in signaling activity in these tissues. If you imagine the pollen and the egg cell, they go through like much more diverse changes during their cell life than like a leaf cell. Um, and therefore it's no uh, surprise or it's nice to see here how these regulatory enzymes are much more active in this tissue. 
I also like the fact that there was different amounts of phosphorylation depending on sort of protein types. So um, in a lot of proteins or in some proteins at least, there would just be kind of um, spots on that entire protein, small kind of local areas which had a lot of phosphorylation um, sites and these are regulatory domains so as Yoram said you can phosphorylate those bits and turn that protein on or off and make it basically enzymatically active or not Um, but with other proteins they were kind of just covered in these phosphorylation sites Um, and one example is members of the LIA protein family um, which basically every serine, threonine or tyrosine, so any of the three amino acids which can get phosphorylated, were phosphorylated um, across the protein sequence. And this is because LIA proteins um, are quite special. They're unstructured proteins, so they're kind of floppy and they just like move around in space um, and they only become structured at certain times. And it's thought that maybe that the phosphorylation could be involved in changing their um, structure when they're required um, to have it. So this is quite a cool thing. Yeah. Um, so I think like taking this entire paper together, um, this is a very large and a very useful tool to investigate a number of questions around uh, proteins and their function in the plant. And um, yeah, it's, it's almost a shame for me that I'm not in the lab anymore because I would love to use this <laughs> like a lot. Actually, I, I really got excited into like diving into this. I put some of my genes in there that I studied. Um, it won't do like it won't help me a lot, but I know that people in research now, uh, for them, this is really exciting because so often you get like a, a gene ID, you get something that looks interesting from one of your experiments, and now you can type it into this large database um, that they made available and mm-hmm. um, already get an idea like where is it expressed in the plant, what are the co- like what things correlate with it, um, how much of the protein is actually there, is the protein phosphorylated or not, um, so really really exciting stuff yeah and that we didn't really discuss but the the atlas can be explored using um both this proteomics database um and also athena which is the arabidopsis italiana expression atlas um so you can kind of get access to all of this and use it for your future experiments if you're in the lab yeah, we'll link to the paper in um, the show notes. Uh, we actually big thanks to someone who shared the ReadCube um, link. That's how I found it actually via yeah. Twitter. Yeah, because this is not open access, but with the ReadCube link, um, this is like a special link. That is it. Authors who get it. Yeah, it's for authors. Yeah, it's the authors, and they, with that, they can the authors can share access to their paper, which is always very useful if, if authors do that. Um, and so we're going to put that link um, in the description, so you can have a look yourself. And there's also the link to the database in the paper if you want to play with it and have a look for yourself. And I think a lot of journals do this kind of shareable link. Um, you see more and more people uploading stuff onto um, their ResearchGate profile now. So if you do publish something yourself and you get a shareable link, um, yeah, put it online. That can't hurt. Yeah. Um, let's move on and let's have some fun. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Can I can I say something about the um the paper we just did? Yes. <laughs> I, I had this um in just the notes so, so that like, I didn't. It will probably be cut, but Tegan just asked me to play the jingle again, so that after she, we play the jingle for the next segment, she can call no, no, back to the previous because, one. Because Yoram, it's fun. Okay. I don't think it really is fun. Um, <laughs> I had some notes I added to our. We make a little write up of what we want to talk about 
regarding the papers. I pr- you probably can't tell given how much of a sham was it when we actually start talking. But we have notes. Um, and I had this, this thing that I wanted to talk about and it just didn't fit in anywhere. And it's that I really love the introduction sentence of this paper in the kind of abstract. I think it's called a summary in, in nature, but it's an abstract. Um, Plants are essential for life and are extremely diverse organisms with unique molecular capabilities. Like... I don't know, to me, because it's nature, it's not like a plant-specific journal. Um, The idea of saying plants are essential to life is just so charming. Like, (laughs) And then I went into this rabbit hole because after that, it has a a kind of footnote, um, a a one. It looks like a reference note. And I think it might be a typo because I looked at the reference number one and that was a completely different reference which fits in with the introduction. Anyway, an abstract shouldn't have references. Um, and then I got into the formatting guidelines of nature and it says like there's a really precise way of how to construct a nature summary paragraph I don't know I've obviously never written a nature paper in my life Um, but (laughs) the the first sentence the first one or two sentences has to provide a basic introduction to the field comprehensible to a science in any discipline and I personally thought it was a really nice commentary on plant science that we have to keep on telling like cancer <laughs> researchers that plants are essential for life. Like, I I don't know. It just I, it's just like why are we still telling people this? But also we still do need to be telling. Like the the the, the journal is absolutely not wrong. But yeah, yeah you're right. Guys, plants are essential for life. <laughs> Did you know? Just try. Sorry. It. And again, I am not mocking this paper. I just think this is like really a feature of um how plant science stands out in the rest of of the kind of scientific community like there's much more interest in medicine um human development uh space research you know kind of cool astrophysics stuff than plant research which yeah yeah but we always have these introduction uh introduction sentences that we have to write like i'm just pulled up my thesis where i i my first sentence is a large fraction of the life on earth is dependent on organisms performing oxygenic photosynthesis because then i go into photosynthesis later on and we always have like these very common sentences in the beginning because we need them we have to sort of start from like zero and say like lead into the topic but with plants it's very often it's just like look they are actually very very important you might not think about them a lot but actually you should I'm just trying to find, I'm trying to pull up my kind of first author publication from my PhD now to see what the first sentence is. Um, Okay, in the abstract, it's upon exposure to light, plant cells quickly acquire photosynthetic competence by converting pale atiaplas into green chloroplasts. So that's a little bit more specific. But I'm guessing my actual introduction. Oh, it's about, yeah, it's the thylakoid membranes of mature chloroplasts, blah, 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 blah. House the reactions that fuel nearly all life on Earth. <laughs> See how I was conservative and I said nearly all life on Earth? Because some things they don't use the sun. Yeah. And I also always try to avoid like absolutes in the statements because in biology, <laughs> there's hardly any absolute ever. <laughs> My old boss and I had very opposing opinions on that. He's always just like, just make a statement. And I was always like, adding like nearly, almost, perhaps. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> a large and fraction. that's why he's a more successful <laughs> scientist than I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's probably that. Um, and I would just like to, to say to all of those organisms that don't use the sun um, to, to fuel their life, I have no respect for you. <laughs> Absolutely none. <laughs> Including all humans and animals. You're such a photosynthesist. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, my ex-boyfriend once said that he can't respect any life. I was trying to convince him that cats are awesome. And he said he doesn't respect any life form that can't fix its own carbon, which I just... 
I feel really pleased. I think that's one of the wisest thing he or anybody has ever said. <laughs> uh, to me, it sounds like a very hipster organism. It's just like uh, people roasting their own coffee or fixing their own carbon. It's just like other people just go to the store and get it. And these people have to make it at home. So plants I mean, are the OG hipsters. <laughs> That's my point. Occasionally you do hear these arguments about, oh, how cool it would be if humans could photosynthesize. And I just I no. just don't think so. I like eating bread and chocolate and if I photosynthesized I would have to I would have to not, right? No, you know what you would give up if you wouldn't uh, if you, by being able to photosynthesize movement and uh, nervous system and brain. No, you could you could still do that. I mean, plants don't because they don't have enough energy to have muscles yeah, or a brain. Don't be anti-algae. Algae can photosynthesize its size and move. Yeah, but only a unicellular algae or like yeah. a very small But then you could like get into really small spaces and like go through keyholes. No, like nobody could block you if, out of anything. If, you, if we would be human-sized but green and able to photosynthesize, yeah. we would we not have be brains. very fast. <laughs> and yeah, and we'd be very stupid, I we, think. We would be bushes, essentially. Um <laughs> Okay, sorry. What <laughs> what fun fact were you going to say before I just completely um <laughs> derailed everything? Um, no, my fun fact is um, I found the Plant Daddy podcast, um, and they just uh, released an episode. Uh, it's actually the not the newest one, but the one before that about qu uh, quarantine friendly plant projects, and that was quite interesting. They are all about like horticulture and growing plants at home, which, to be fair, is not really what I usually care about. Um, but I found them quite charming and talking about the things and they were talking about like how to mix your um, your own soil to, together for example they have in another uh -huh. episode a special on succ succulent soil and the properties you need for succulent soil so they it actually drains very quickly so they uh, don't have any standing water um, and they sort of talk about how bad the soils are that you can buy in the stores and how you like make your own from like a shelf board um, components so that you can actually he said like with some of the soils you can actually water your succulent every single day and it doesn't die uh, which usually is not what you would expect from a succulent but if it has the right soil and pre can pretty much run off immediately and just like a little bit of residual water stays with the roots um, then they're fine so I, I just really enjoyed that I want to give a shout What's out to the, the point of getting a succulent if you're still watering it every day i think for some people who ha have to water plants and some of them need water every day they rather have they just go around and um don't have to remember like did i water this last week or didn't i and do i have to water it again they just water everything you know and it just drains there and doesn't matter you know how um, everybody's talking about how with the lockdown we're gonna have a lot of covid babies and a lot of covid divorces I think we'll also have a lot of COVID dead house plants, right? Because people are just like bored and... <laughs> overwatering them. Overwatering everything. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Guys, instead of overwatering, how about setting up a little propagation station? Like start trying to propagate some of your plants instead mm -hmm. of just constantly watering them. I think it's actually one of the projects that they give in the quarantine plant project is uh, like how, uh, setting up a propagation station. Because I remember that because the word sounds so nice. Propagation station. Yeah. Yeah, so I did not come up with that. Check out the Plant Daddy podcast. Very nice thing. Um, I have something cool found via Twitter, which was actually sent to me by my boss. Um, there was a shout out from Elizabeth Archer, um, ED Archer Thinks, at ED Archer Thinks. Um, and she has some pictures of uh, just a footpath in Walthamstow, which happens to be my kind of local hood. Um, 
where somebody has written on chalk on the pavement the names of different plants and kind of described briefly. So there's like um, sycamore, a real survivor grows anywhere. And then um, what was the other one? London Plain. And it's like in brackets, my favorite. Um, and it takes pollution out of the air and things like this. So did I uh, she was present looking- that in the past, this thing? I presented something about people writing on the boardwalk with chalk. I just wanted to call it one out once that usually I'm the one who brings up topics twice or three times. Oh no, but she only just sent it to me today. No, it's new. And maybe it's maybe it's a copycat. I'll I'll Whatever. allow it. It's in my neighborhood. So <laughs> no, it's really cool. And it de- deserves a second or third you. shout out. Anyway, um the person who's doing it is at Curious Wilds. So that's the actual one who's writing the chalk. Um Elizabeth Arch was just the one who'd seen the chalk. Yeah. We'll link to it. I really like this. And this Yoram is, will be smug. <laughs> no, I, I really like this um, this sort of uh, guerrilla uh, science communication by just going out in the uh, in the real world and say like, look, these things that you pass all the time, actually very exciting stuff. Um, I have a shameless self plug. I wrote a little post on my own website. Uh, it has nothing to do with plants, uh, but with podcasts and. Um, I figured that right now many people want to start podcasting or they just sit in a lot of uh, video meetings. Um, and I wrote like a, a little guide together about how to, uh, how to make your podcast sound better. better. And it's really not like audiophile BS. It's about just like some basic principles that some people might not be aware of, like keeping a microphone close to your face instead of far away from your face if you want to have decent sound and things <laughs> like that. Um, so if you want to check that out, the link is in the show notes. It's on my my website, which is my name, joram.schwarzmann.de. I do want to comment that I have like beautiful professional um, headphone with microphone thanks to Joram's research. But I forgot to bring my kind of more casual headphones associated with work home with me when we kind of bailed out of the the London offices. And now every time I have a Zoom or Skype or whatever work meeting, somebody comments on the fact that I look like I'm an air fighter or the fact that I look ridiculously (laughs) over-professional. Like somebody will always raise the fact that I have the stupid headphones. So you will sound perfect, but you will get mocked. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. But at the same time, I think even if you're not into podcasting and you have a lot of these, these meetings, having a headset really helps for the benefit of everybody because they... Yeah, it just sounds better. You don't have echo. You don't have like any weird sound effects um, that you get um, if you just talk into your computer and you have your the computer speakers uh, play it back as, at the same time. Um, I heard like on Twitter, actually, many people really losing their minds about like very bad etiquette in Zoom calls where people don't mute their microphones and start like eating or um, talking to their cat or whatever. Um, so... <laughs> Muting yourself and having a headset are two things you can do for the benefit of, of the people you're in a uh, meeting with. Also, the whole, like, if you choose to go to the toilet during your Zoom talk, call, maybe leave your phone or whatever you're using to, to video you in a different room. Don't, yeah. You don't need to take that with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine to say, I need to go to the bathroom yeah. and leave. Yeah. Um, I have a really cool thing that... Um, also one of my colleagues sent to me today I'm obviously not getting out very much at the moment so I'm mostly interacting with my housemate and my work colleagues um, online obviously if you've met me and you've talked to me for more than five minutes you probably know that I have two rants about 
I mean, broadly about feminism, but that's really a little bit of a stretch. So my first rant <laughs> I'm just trying to think of which one of the many is, uh, is coming up now. Okay, what's is like my key rant? Dress, dresses with pockets? Yes, yes. Okay, so the first one I would say is actually the fact that it's unfair that we can't pee standing up. And if you tell me, yes, we can pee standing up, yes, we can as women, it's possible, but I'm not going to go into this again. Logistically, it's just more tricky. Um, and the second thing is that I believe that it is a... Um, deliberate plot of the patriarchy to design female clothing with no or stupid and unfunctional pockets because it then allows men to say oh women are so stupid they always lose their phone and or keys and we don't you just make it that our pockets are designed so that when we sit down our our phone falls into the toilet and that's not fun anyway <laughs> um short round over my i was kind of complaining about this to my colleague today because most of us are now wearing sweatpants and or pajama pants as part of our work attire and sweatpants and or pajama pants often also do not have pockets especially if they're designed for females somebody somebody that i know um and i'm not going to say who <laughs> has got around the problem by simply stealing their ex-boyfriend's pajama pants which i think is um an option <laughs> for some of us um <laughs> I tried. It didn't work. <laughs> no, um, but my, sorry, my my colleague sent to me today that there's actually these kind of outside pockets um, from the 18th century, which is basically like a belt, but pockets. And I know you're think gonna think this is like a bum bag, but it's just not. It's just it's just pockets. It's like <laughs> two pockets, maybe with some pretty embroidery on it, um, and you just tie pockets around your waist. And I think I really want to have these so that I can just, no matter what my outfit is, I can put pockets on top. That's that's really um, good. Yeah, I'm, we're going to put a link up. Um, maybe Yoram can put a picture straight onto the... Um, yeah, so in the 18th century, some women had pockets, which were external things that they carried around and tied over their dresses. So they would always have pockets and... It's really sad to me that feminism has come such a, a far way in many ways, but we've gone backwards when it comes to pockets. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It sounds, but it sounds like a really cool project to also like s s sew now. I, th I imagine yeah, it, must, it must not be too hard to do this right now. Like, like you don't need a lot of fabric. You, it probably isn't too yeah. difficult to stitch that, to, to sew that. I have to say these ones are like beautifully embroidered and yeah, I mean, like I like embroidery as a concept but like just I don't have a lot of patience for it however now might be like isolation might be the the thing that encourages me to get really into this kind of domestic drudgery <laughs> and and just call it like asymmetric minimalism and just have it like plain gray and slightly off center and then it's stylish no I, I I do really love embroidery. Like I, I think it's it's really really beautiful. And the ones that um, Yoram is going to link on the on the podcast app are really really incredibly beautiful. <laughs> uh, I really want are. them. Yeah. I covet them. I have something um, uh, I write on the BBC, and I want to discuss this um, because uh, maybe some other people see this as well. It's one of these sort of contrarian things like we talked about it last december when there was this big project about planting what 20 million trees or actually i never heard of billions? it again billions mm. maybe oh, like several trillion trees or something that they wanted to plant and i think yeah, they were successful but to be honest i completely lost it uh there was a very famous paper that came out in science also um called like the the global um reforestation potential Re Exactly. We actually covered that on the blog. Yeah. And then that got a lot of rebuttal with people saying you have not calculated your numbers properly. So this is yeah. 
quite a big thing. But this one is now specifically about the UK, um, where sort of the gist of it is that if we just plant trees with no plan, uh, no, no plan really where to put them, <laughs> if we just, wherever we have space, we put trees, this is potentially harmful because um, especially in the, U uh, in the UK, you have a lot of um, like moorlands like that are very peat rich mm -hmm. and peat is a great carbon sink. And so if you plant trees on there, they uh, desiccate the, the soil and actually release more of the, the bound carbon dioxide in there then they can bind themselves um, so putting trees on like uh, wetlands is um, a net um, negative for the co2 balance i have something that comes off that somehow um so i think a couple of months ago i discussed on the pub on the podcast this really really cool article that i think was in the atlantic called pleistocene park um, and it was about this scientist who is trying to uh, change the the kind of tundra in Siberia to make it resemble um, more of a grassland, to go back towards a grassland and not, not stay as a woodland. And the reason is that grasslands have higher primary productivity, which should um, kind of protect and prevent um, the, the land from defrosting and it should actually work as a carbon sink because of the, the higher productivity. So it should be better for global warming. Yeah. And this guy has the idea to kind of bring back the, the herd animals that used to be there that keep the grassland productive, but also the which remove trees. And one of his original ideas is to basically reinvent woolly mammoths. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I did want to mention is that this has now been published. I think not the woolly mammoth idea, but kind of a discussion about this Pleistocene Park in scientific reports as of a couple of weeks ago. So we'll put the link to that. It's 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 kind of a similar idea. It's the idea that having trees is not always the best thing. Um, in some cases, having a grassland would be more productive, but also, as Yoram said, in some cases, there are other ecosystems which represent more biodiversity or a more natural habitat for what's there. Yeah, but um, the the story also continues uh, a little bit more. Um, so the this article on the BBC is based on a report from a natural capital committee and actually don't really know what the function of this is, if this is like a private entity or a public entity. Um, but they raise a few points and because I think might, some people might stumble across this article, especially as we link to it, um, I just want to also call out some things that I mentioned in there. They say if we convert pastures to woodlands, um, we reduce the amount of land that we have or that the UK has to produce meat and then they will import meat from other places. And I think this is an argument that I, I uh, hear very often and I would just say like this is an opportunity to reduce overall meat production because we know meat production is not very sustainable in terms of, uh, of uh, global warming. Um, so it could actually be like a double good thing because it would first of all mm -hmm. like put trees that could fix carbon on pastures and it would also reduce the meat production which is also a major uh, source of um, uh, climate gas ga gases um, and the same is, tr is true when for like they also mentioned other things like that when we shut down harmful local industries we'll just import um, the things from places where the industry is even worse um, but I think we should rather strive for to, uh, towards the idea of not needing the products of harmful industries instead of just saying like, look, we can't shut down our bad industry locally because then we will buy from other bad industry outside. It doesn't work for everything, but as mm. a general, I don't think it's a valid point to say like we can't plant trees because then we can't use bad industry anymore. 
I am I am concerned about one element of that that argument, which is kind of the keeping everything local. I think there are parts of the world which are just naturally research uh, resource poorer than other parts of the world. So I think that's something we have to be careful about. Yeah. As far as saying, I mean, you can't say, oh, you grew up in this land and therefore your nation or your people should have only access to these resources because that's what's in that land. I think that's kind of yeah. a a shitty yeah. thing. No, I think here they also mention that uh, because it's in the UK, that the UK will be more dependent of local production in the future mm -hmm. um, to some to, due to some political decisions. And that's why I think they're particularly worried about like cutting down places where they can farm meat um, and mm -hmm. do other industries. Because, yeah, if if they leave the EU or when they leave the EU, um, they like imports will be expensive. And so having it in your own country in this particular case is the on an economic um, scale, it's more uh, makes more sense for them. Anyway, I just, I just wanted to mention that because I, I don't want anybody reading this article and think like, oh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't plant trees. I think overall, it's still a good idea to plant trees wherever it's useful and, and possible. Um, but it's not not all places um, make it useful to plant trees there. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. That, I think that's quite intuitive for everybody who also comes from a, an environment that is not naturally a foresty kind of place, right? I mean, Australia yeah. has like some of the most amazing desert lands, which their uniqueness is the fact that they don't have trees and they are desert. So putting trees, in, I mean, they wouldn't grow, but it's also not helpful. Yeah. Um, I have something which is from natureindex.com, which I had actually not heard about until I saw this. I think I, I saw it through the um, nature email that comes around. Anyway, it's what can your PhD supervisor do for you? And it's based on a preprint that went up on BioArchive recently, I believe. We can link to both the article and to the preprint. And it's basically a survey in Australia of PhD students and their supervisors. It's not a huge survey, so I think there's only yeah 114 PhD students and 52 supervisors, but they were kind of comparing what the PhD students thought they were getting and should be getting and what the supervisors thought they, they should be giving and were giving. Um, and one of the conclusions is that PhD students were saying that they should get like at least four papers, get grants, get awards, and that was the most important thing to come out of their candidature, while the supervisors said, oh, you should be getting critical thinking skills, communication skills, um, knowledge of your discipline. Um, and these were the greatest indicators of the success. And again, I... I'm surprised I to me... I had some comments on this. <laughs> I had some thoughts because I... I mean, Yoram, tell your thoughts. Um, my intuitive idea is just that it would be the opposite. I always heard from above, sort of from the level above, that we need papers and we need all of sort of these these documents for our career, while within our peers, sort of on the same uh, level or below, we would always just uh, emphasize like how many like soft skills and additional like the critical thinking and, and these sort of skills, how many of those we acquired and how useful they are. But it maybe came also from the fact that like many people that I knew had struggled with getting a, a good paper together. So they mm. rather focused on the things that aren't a paper but are still very valuable in the career. Yeah, I'm not super certain which um, discipline this is or if it's across disciplines. I can have a look in the bio archive thing quickly. Um, but this could also be, I mean, four, four papers for our field seems less likely. Um, for other fields, it might be more reasonable. But I mean, yeah, also, 
I always find this this problem between established researchers and younger researchers where I often hear the established researchers saying we shouldn't be focusing on impact factor, we shouldn't be focusing on number of publications, we shouldn't look at only this, you should be looking you know, more holistically about the quality of the scientists. And yet they're the ones who have the permanent positions and they're making hiring decisions. So as far as I can tell, they are the ones who are reinforcing the system. Like yeah. I've, I've heard... Um, professors say oh i would never publish in this journal because i don't believe in their their ethics or whatever or i would never do this and this and this or i don't believe in this and yet time and time again i see that when it comes to hiring or especially when it comes to getting money what counts is your impact factor on the publications and how many publications you have so that was a bit weird um the other thing that i think is not surprising about this study is um dun 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 the proportion of students versus supervisors who said that students were given guidance in key skills without having to ask for it directly. And quite unsurprisingly, the supervisors all thought that they were giving really good advice, whereas a lot of the students said that they were left alone quite a lot as far as developing their written communication skills, developing their critical thinking skills and developing their knowledge of the discipline, which are all the things that the supervisors said were really important. Mm -hmm. And the supervisors were like, well, we are supporting them. But the, the candidate said, no, we're not being supported at all, um, which I think is quite telling. And of course, again, a part of the PhD is becoming an independent learner. But I do, again, think there's quite a gap, which I know a lot of PhD f- students felt when I was doing my PhD, that they're not getting the yeah. the support in actually developing. And you are a PhD student, so you should be learning. And that's that's a big part of the task. And yeah, I thought... That was a thing that could be addressed. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's always interesting to me how how uh, like surveys can go against like your personal experience. I've seen that also like in other fields where like you think you know what's going on, and then somebody asks a lot of people, and it's quite the opposite of what you thought. And sometimes it's the study design that favors that, and sometimes it's you being wrong, and sometimes it's a mixture of both. Um, so yeah, it's, I find it very interesting to hear that. I did want uh, just one other quick comment about this this article. So they acknowledge that problems in the relationship between the supervisor and the students can be a huge reason why students don't complete their PhD. But I did note that in the language they used, I thought it was a little bit negative. So they said a 2019 survey of 311 European universities reported that 34% of PhD students failed to complete their doctoral studies within six years, with many students likely quitting altogether. And I think like failing to complete is also kind of a um, a different idea because... I think there's a bit of a problem still with this mentality of you have to complete what you you started, which this is something that can take four years um, or apparently more than six years, which I would guess is skewed by Germany, where people take a really long time um, traditionally. Sorry, Germany. Um, But choosing at a certain stage of your PhD to not complete your PhD it's not failing to complete your PhD. Often, I mean, a lot of people are then going to do other things or they're following up on other paths. So I, I don't I don't like that. And especially um, during my time as a PhD student, again, I encountered situations where the, the PhD student was not in a good position, either from project or from supervision or other reasons. But there was very much this idea that 
once you were one year in or six months in even, you had to go all the way through and you should mm-hmm. complete it no matter what the top cost to your personal life, to your mental health, to your physical health either. And I think this I, this is a bit of a, an unhealthy mentality, I would say. So I don't really like the idea of failing to complete doctoral studies. I know it's kind of a turn of phrase, but meh. Yeah. I mean, you're talking to the right person there. Like, I haven't completed yet. I was often very close to not completing. And I don't really want to give the advice to cancel your PhD, but maybe consider canceling your PhD if you're really unhappy. I don't think, I don't think it's worth taking a big hit on your personal well-being just to finish something. If you, if you realize six months, 12 months, 18 months in that it's not for you, it's no use spending another 18 months or more to pushing through it. Um, it's one of the biases you talked about, actually, yeah. in the podcast, this sunk cost fallacy. Like, I've already put in this much time. I've got to finish it. Guys, it could take more than six years. That's what this study shows. Like, six years is <laughs> a long time. You could, like, I, mean, I don't know, I started, raise a cat in that time. <laughs> I started mine uh, six years ago. Like, <gasps> but I've been doing, like, I've been working other stuff for a while now. So I, I haven't been, like, six <laughs> years in the lab. But I know other people, like, in another lab that I was before, um, there were some people that were sort of uh, called, like, the eternal PhD students there because uh. they, I think they were even, like, eight years in or something. Like, they, like, on the, on the brink where the university was trying to sort of kick them out for st- uh, staying for too long. And then they found ways to extend that and, and so on. And, like, it, it differs um, from country to country as yeah. well, right? So I think it's traditionally more like five or six years in the US, whereas in Australia, it's like four years. It depends. Yeah. Yeah. In, in Germany, I think usually it's three years in Germany, but you can get, ex- get ex- you can extend it. And also universities can make up their own rules, like how long it can go. And that's why in Germany mm-hmm. you can also get like much longer times. I feel like Germany has a, um, a reputation for having students who stay students for a very long time, but this is usually at the bachelor level, not at the undergrad level. Yeah. And it's because in Germany, being a student is actually quite nice because there is free education, there's support by the state, whereas in other places of the world, like my country, you are literally living below the poverty line, which is yeah. not ideal, not something you want to stay in. So yeah. well done, Germany, actually. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I have to say it, it changed a little bit with like a big reform we had a couple of years ago. Um, so now it's also much harder to stay student forever. But like there were there were golden times like 80s, 90s, when people could stay like for 10 years um, doing their master's degree um, and, <laughs> um, and still getting financial support and all of this stuff. Um, I think I'll skip my last fact and put it uh, on maybe for next week or something. Uh, I have a cat fact. Do you have something more? I have two more quick things. Um, okay, so the f- the first thing is, does this name mean anything to you? Landudno. Landudno? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't mean anything to me. I'll give you a clue. It is a place. I don't know. Is it maybe in the Czech Republic? No, it's a town in Wales um, where everybody has gone into coronavirus lockdown and wild goats have taken over the town. Yay, so, wild um, goats. We've, I think we talked about this very briefly last week, the idea of kind of the wilderness creeping back in. But go and uh, check out Landudno, Dundo, Landundo, sorry. Um, there's just pictures of wild goats roaming the streets and it's... <laughs> kind of some jokes about people saying that well now they're locked in they can't get out again and you know the police are not having to keep people in their houses because the goats are doing that job um for them so (laughs) it's quite a charming byproduct of the kind of horrible situation that we have right now (laughs) 
Um, and the other quick thing I wanted to say is something that Yoram, I think you will really like. There's a Twitter account called @LabOnTheCheap, and a couple of days ago mm-hmm. only they showed a 3D printable pipette tip sorter. So for any of you who have ever mm. worked in molecular biology, you have um, these containers which have 96 different holes and you have to put small tips into those holes, which are then the ends of your pipette. And you spend a fairly large amount of time refilling your pipette tips so that you can again do your experiments. And this is a very basic um, plastic device which you kind of shove a whole lot of the tips in, like just throw them in and you shake it a bit. And then you kind of insert a comb in the side and everything magically lines up. I do not understand how it works, but it's done. I'm sure Yoram is looking at the I'm, I'm the looking at it right, right now. now and it's so often like you literally spend hours <laughs> during your PhD time doing this task because all of the pipette tips that you use, you will have to eventually refill them. Um And I always wondered there must be a better way. And I wondered how do they do this in machines? You can buy them pre-packed, but they're very, very expensive. So no lab does that unless they're like super rich. And our lab wasn't poor and they still didn't do that. And we had to do it manually because it's just so much more expensive to get them pre-filled. I wonder how do the machines do this? And I, I imagine the machines do it in a similar way to this handheld device. And I wish I would have had it that. It looks really cool. And it looks it's 3D printable. It. Yeah, you can watch it forever. Um, you probably will. You'll save so much time filling your pipette tip boxes that you can just spend the rest of the time watching the the GIF showing somebody else filling a pipette tip box. Um, it's 3D printable, and they have, I think, a link which gives you the instructions. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody go and print this shit out and show us if it works. I, I'm really, really curious, and it's amazing, right? And it's yeah. for the other thing is it's for the really tiny ones. So it's from the 10 microliter, which is the smallest ones. And those fuckers, <laughs> sorry, those duckers, <laughs> those buggers, those naughty little boys, naughty little tips, um, they hurt. They spike you. You you grab in a handful of them and you're getting, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's not fun. And also what I like about this is you don't actually have to touch the piper tips. Like... Obviously, you oh, wear yeah. gloves in the in the lab when you do this, but still, like, if you really I care lick about my gloves. if you really care about like every Sorry. single pipette tip, you just like <laughs> licking your finger, <laughs> grabbing, reaching in the bag, licking your finger, reaching in the I bag. I only mouth pipette, <laughs> and then putting like the half of the, the half of the bag back into the common common storage, so the next person can have like your licked pipette tips. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so yeah, it's 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 also like if you really care about really clean tips. Um, for example, if you want to avoid carotene doing your proteomics, which is like the protein from your skin and hairs and stuff, um, which gets like in my samples, it wasn't every single sample um, uh, and a lot of it too, because I, yeah, I... But you've got a beard. I have a beard, I shed and everything. Um, <laughs> so... This and you're thing, like 90% cat fur at any given time as well. <laughs> that, that too. Um, so this thing would really help, would have helped me. Um, really cool thing excited best thing cat fact best thing that happened to me in my life <laughs> knowing about this i can't believe i found this and you didn't find this this is like completely in your wheelhouse like yeah. lab hacking 3d printing some easy way to do something that we hate doing like yeah i'm, I'm shocked you're offended shocked. at myself for not knowing about this earlier i'm disgusted <laughs> and dis- i'm not angry i'm disappointed <laughs> shutting you off with cat sounds <laughs> Cat fact. 
I have a cat fight. It's actually not that fun, um, but very topical, very related. Um, and probably you've heard about it as well. Um, is that cats can get the coronavirus? Um, they have. Yeah. There has been the case of the tigers and lions in the Brooklyn Zoo that were tested positive. And I uh -huh. pulled up an article. There's many articles out there. I pulled one up from The Verge. I found. Uh, I, I found a. They write it up nicely and in an understandable way, which is. Overall, you don't have to be too concerned. Your your cat probably won't give you the virus, but also if you are sick, um, maybe don't cuddle your cats as much as um, as usually. Um, and yeah, don't share food with them and and things like that. Uh, just as a um, precaution. Precaution, exactly. Like you yeah, don't I have to like stay away. Like you don't have to distance yourself from your cats right now, um, because probably your cat will be exposed to less people being sick than you are. So probably you will give it to the cat and not the other way around. Yeah, and also um, they said that the the cat's probably not going to get so sick. It's probably not going to have as bad an effect on them. I think that was also yeah. Yeah, like, they, no, even the the tigers and lions in the zoo, they um, will all fully recover from it. They, they mm -hmm. it won't be a permanent damage. But yeah, so that's not a very fun cat fact. But also, I think in times of lots of um, like fake news out there, it's important to mention like don't panic about the cats. It is true that they can carry the virus. In contrast, for example, to dogs, who where there are no reports that um, not, no credible reports that the dogs can get it, um, but even even so you won't get the virus from your cat and in the very worst case and this is also rare that it happens your cat can get the virus from you so mm. so that's it follow us please <laughs> on instagram or on facebook you can talk to me we're at plants and pipettes on twitter you can talk to me we're at plants pipettes on twitter we also have a blog, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. And there we write twice weekly about random things that are happening in the world of plant molecular biology. And you can always reach out to us if you have comments about the things that we said, something that we got wrong. If you have a question, we would really like to get your questions and answer them on here. Um, you can find ways to contact us on the website or through the social media things. Yeah, and a couple of people have contacted me on Facebook and also through Instagram, not only to say that they like the podcast, but also to give us some suggestions of things they'd like to see improved or, um, yeah, certain elements they liked or didn't like. And that's always appreciated, even if you just have things that you hate about the podcast. Um, yeah, yeah, please let us know. We love hearing from you and we're always interested in your opinions. So, yeah, bring it on. And rate us on iTunes if you want to. That would be very nice. Uh, we publish articles on our blog. Even uh, if you don't want to, like you're in isolation, just go and do it. Yeah. Like, like if you think, you know what, I don't want to today. What else are you doing? Go and rate us. Go and rate us. Is that too, is that too aggressive? No, no, that's exactly <laughs> the right mood that we need right now at the end of this episode. Um, you can Aggression. <laughs> There's something else? No, I think we're good. I think it's uh, the opening closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Talk to you next week when we come back with more segments and less papers because it will be the other week type thing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> goodbye. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>
say something? Hello? Yeah, now I can hear you again. 